want you to finish the sentence this morning. If I were to come up here as I am right now and give you a greeting that began like this, how would you respond to it? God is good. Ah, uh, you've been there before, haven't you? Oh, uh, we've been doing that kind of call and response in worship for a long time. God is good. All the time and all the time, God is good. I'm told that um, that call and response originated in uh, some of the churches of our African brothers and sisters many years ago. In fact, they not only use it uh, as an element of formal worship, they also use it uh, as something of a street greeting as they come upon a Christian brother or sister literally in their comings and in their goings. It's not uncommon for them to greet them by simply saying God is good and having the respondent call back to them all the time. And certainly, those of you that have been walking uh, with the Lord for some time know that the goodness of God is something that most of us as believers consider kind of as basic to the character of God. If I were to ask you to describe God, that would be what many people would say early on in their description of God. We might say God is holy or God is love, but probably pretty soon thereafter, <clears throat> we'd get around to the marvelous goodness of God because most of us consider that that's something that's totally essential to the understanding, proper understanding of, of God himself. So much so that for years and years and years, particularly in our culture, many of us uh, taught our children how to pray by using that very traditional table blessing. God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And it's that idea, the inherent goodness of God, the goodness of God that we want our children to get in on from the time that they're old enough to memorize a simple table prayer. It's that goodness of God that James speaks of in our passage that we're gonna look at this morning it's that goodness of God that James appeals to as he continues to encourage his infant church now under great persecution, many of whom now have had to leave their homes and places of business in Jerusalem and scatter out all over much of the Mediterranean world because of trials in their lives. James is appealing to the goodness of God as a means of getting them to settle down and to focus on God rather than focusing on their problems. And here's how he says it beginning <clears throat> in chapter one of James's letter, verse 16. Y'all ready to read? Would you say amen this morning? Amen. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down <clears throat> from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now today, we kind of pick up part two of a message that I began last Sunday, for those of you that may have been here, a message that we have entitled, Testing, Temptation, and the Goodness of God. And this passage of scripture, really, that begins with the preceding paragraph, we just didn't have time to deal with all of the appropriate component parts in one message, but all three of those words in that sermon title are very important. Obviously, James chapter one deals with testing or what we've referred to as trials. And then last week, we broached the subject of temptation and how a temptation is different from a trial, but how a temptation is often associated 
with the many trials that we go through in life and where temptations come from. Today, we just want to kind of focus on the positive side of all of that, namely the goodness of God. You'll remember that James emphatically denies that God is behind the temptations that many of us face in life. Uh, Many of you probably were tempted as early as this morning. Um, Maybe some of you are being tempted right now in your thought life. I mean, temptation is an ever-present part of our discipleship journey with God. But James wants to be very clear that we absolutely cannot pin our temptations on a holy God. And uh, God cannot be blamed for the temptations we face in life. God cannot be tempted in any way, shape, or form. And as we broached last week, that's because of the essential attribute of God that we call His holiness. It's precisely because God is holy, totally sinless, totally perfect, devoid of sin, devoid of corruption in any way, shape, or form. It's because of God's holiness that he's incapable of being tempted by evil, and he's incapable of tempting anybody else with it. The very thought of God tempting us to act sinfully ought to be anathema to us. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever even imply such a thing could ever happen. But we have this built-in tendency to point fingers, isn't that right? We have this built-in tendency that's been around humanity ever since the first couple, Adam and Eve. And you remember, of course, when God went looking for Adam after Eve had given in to temptation, the first thing he did was point his bony finger at that woman and said, that woman, that woman that you gave to me, she's responsible. And of course, the woman pointed a bony finger at the serpent. That serpent, that wily snake is responsible. And God wanted them to understand then And wants us to understand today that we cannot blame anybody for our responses to temptation other than ourselves. You can't blame God for it because God's never behind an unholy act. You can't even blame the devil for it because all the devil can do is, you know, dangle a proverbial carrot stick in front of you. You are responsible for how you respond to whatever that it is. We are responsible for how we respond to temptation. So God's not responsible for it. James has a different way that he wants us to view God, not as a manipulative God, not as a mean-spirited God, not as a God who wants the best or wants the worst, rather, for us. But instead, James wants us to view the God of the Bible as this eternally good God, a God who does not change, a good God who, by definition, is a generous God, who gives good gifts to those who are his, who belong to him by salvation. God's not the author of temptation. Instead, God is a good God who the Bible says makes a way of escape. God is behind the pathway of escape to get you out of temptation so that we may be able to endure it. In fact, I want us to kind of walk our way through this very brief passage this morning by looking at three aspects of God that I think just jump off the page concerning God this morning. The first is that James reminds us that God is the giver of every good gift. That's verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now let's just stop there for a second because I don't want you to miss the obvious contrast between this statement and the statement about temptation that immediately precedes it. The temptation to sin comes from an enemy within, James says. 
But the other side of that equation is that the good that we enjoy in life comes from a father above. Temptation comes from an enemy within. Goodness comes from a father above. And the focus here is on the good gifts that come down to us proverbially from the father above. And the basis for those gifts is the goodness of God himself. Why does God give us good gifts? Because God is what kind of God? A good God, that's right. In fact, are you aware that the English word good is directly related to the English word God? We get our English word good from the English word God. You see it every day and you say it every day when you use the word goodbye. Because all the word goodbye is is a contraction of the old English, God be with ye. God be with ye. Goodbye is a contraction of that. So inherent in the word goodbye is the very presence of God himself. In fact, somebody said one time, if you take God out of the word good, all you're left with is a big fat zero. Somebody say amen this morning. Because God is inherently good. In fact, everything that we define is good. Think of something good this morning and tell me God's not behind it. Anything, something tangible, something intangible, God is behind every bit of that because God is inherently good and everything we define as good is rooted in the inherent goodness, the character of God. So that if something is not good, then we know that it's not good because it doesn't reflect God doesn't reflect the character of God, doesn't reflect the word of God, doesn't reflect the will of God. But if it's something that God would approve, if it's something that God would wink at us and nod his head like my granddaddy used to do, then we know that that is a good thing. And we know it's a good thing because the scripture would tell us that it's something that God would readily approve, something that was worthy of God himself. And we read about the goodness of God all through the scripture. I mean, the Bible just sings constantly from start to finish about the goodness of God. Psalm 136, one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Or Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. When Moses in Exodus 33 wanted a vision of the glory of God, oh God, show me your glory. God had him hide in the cleft of the rock and the Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Even when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ who himself we know is God in the flesh, we're told in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that Jesus went about doing what? He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Jesus wasn't responsible for the evil of the devil. He went around countering the evil of the devil by doing good. So indeed, God is good all the time, and he's good all the time because he is by nature a good God. Goodness is very simply who God is. But notice also, and very appropriately so, that God is referred to here as not only a giver of good gifts, but as 
Father. Did you notice that? If you're taking notes, you may want to circle the word Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father. And that reminds us that not only is God good, but it reminds us that God also does good. God does good because God is good. He's a loving Father, and because He is good, He gives good gifts to his children. And is that not exactly what fathers are supposed to do? Fathers are supposed to do good things with respect to their family. They're supposed to provide for their families, for their children, what is good, good things, healthy things, things that are necessary for the growth and for the development of their families. In fact, all throughout scripture, it's all but impossible to separate the goodness of God from the generosity of God. If you want to define goodness, it'd be very hard to define it without including some principle of generosity. Because biblically speaking, goodness and generosity are two sides of the same coin. People that we would describe as good, you would never describe Ebenezer Scrooge as good. You would never describe a man or a woman who you think is a stingy, self-centered hoarder of a person. You'd never describe that person as a good person. No, they're good primarily because what they give. Now, it could be something tangible like money. It could be something tangible like real estate or whatever the case might be, but givers can also give intangible things as well. A good person is quick to give encouragement, for example. A a good person is quick to give a word of praise, for example. A good person is quick to give honesty, and quick to give unconditional love. So whether it's giving tangible things or giving intangible things, good people are by definition generous giving people. There is no goodness where there is no giving. And that's why James connects the two in this passage of scripture today. God is a good God and scripture affirms that from start to finish, but a part of the reason that he's good is because he is a God who loves to give good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Psalm 119 and 68, for example, the psalm writer who's going through a host of trials in his own life, declares of the Lord, you are good and you what? Say it out loud, you you do good. Or Psalm 84, no good thing. The Lord God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. He gives grace and he gives glory. No good thing does he withhold from him who walks uprightly. Now, with respect to these good gifts that come from God, James doesn't specify what they are, does he? He doesn't quantify them. And he doesn't categorize them. He simply speaks in very general terms. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And most of the time, because we're part of a Western American culture, we tend to immediately define and understand those gifts as tangible gifts that we can hold in our hands or, or, or drive out of our driveway or, or go to bed in at night. We think about the material stuff first and foremost most of the time, truth be told. Houses, cars, clothes, food. And would anybody in the room this morning deny that all of those kinds of gifts, material kinds of gifts, come from God? They certainly do. I remember sitting with a family member one time at a dinner table. They'd invited us to come over for dinner and 
And the wife of the house was bragging about a new car that she had received. And she said, boy, before we pray tonight, whoever prays over this meal, I want to be sure to thank the Lord for this car that he provided for us. And the father of the house quickly spoke up and he said, well, I want everybody to know the Lord didn't provide that, I did. And I thought, holy cow, we're gonna have prayer tonight if they call on me. I don't remember if they did or not, but I prayed heaven down if they did. Because that just flew all over me. No, God's responsible for everything that we enjoy. You know why? Because God owns it all. He owns it all. He owns the car you drove. Man, if you've got that walnut trim in that car, God owns the walnut. He owned the tree that the walnut came from. Can I have an amen this morning? God owns everything. And so it would be appropriate for us to understand that every tangible gift that we enjoy, all the material gifts, the money in our bank, the clothes on our back, the roof over our head, all comes from a loving, good, and generous God. But I think James is thinking far more spiritually than he is materially here. He's thinking about spiritual kinds of gifts, gifts that help us. Remember, what's the theme of James chapter one? Overcoming trials. Well, you need some gifts from God if you're gonna endure the trials of life. And I think principally, James is thinking about those gifts that come from God that help us to resist the devil, help us to overcome temptation, help us to endure the trials of life with joy. It's why you gotta read the Bible keeping the appropriate context. It's those kinds of gifts that God gives to us that James is thinking about, things that help us engage in spiritual warfare, in the spiritual battles that we face every day in life. Well, like what, Pastor? Well, how about the gift of wisdom, for one? We've already been told in James 1, if you, if you lack wisdom, ask God who what? Gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. How about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Can I have an amen this morning? Is the Holy Spirit a gift from God in your life? Where's the Holy Spirit? How about inside of you? You carry around the gift of the Holy Spirit. How am I supposed to overcome the trials of life? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And boy, the reason the Holy Spirit is such a wonderful gift is because when you get into one of those hot, fiery trials, you don't have to go, where in the world is the Spirit of God? Holy Spirit, I need you to show up. He's already there. He's living within you. All you have to do is recognize his presence and call on the power of his great name. Is this a gift from the Father of Lights, this book that I'm holding in my hand this morning? Is this a good and perfect gift that comes down from above? The Word of God, which is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even the distinction between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and the will of the heart. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. I appreciate the goodness of God in giving me the good gifts of a house to live in and a car to drive and clothes on my back. Those are all good gifts, but not one of them is a perfect gift. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from above. I got a car I drove to church this morning. It's making a banging noise. It's not perfect. 
I can take you to my home today, which I'm very thankful for, and show you 12 things that need attention, at least 12. It's not perfect gift. It's a gift from God. It's a good gift from God, but it's not a perfect gift. But heavenly wisdom, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God living within me, and those like it are good and perfect gifts. They're perfect in that they're always given in the will of God. And they're perfect in that they're given in such a way to help me perfectly accomplish the plan of God that he has for my life. They come from a perfect father, a good, good father in heaven above. Jesus says it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Which one of you, Matthew chapter 7 which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? We would say that that's an abusive father. Jesus says, oh no, if you then who are evil know how to give what? Good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's very interesting that James begin this, begins this passage by saying, be not deceived, brethren. Now, that's a good ending to the previous paragraph on temptation. God is not the author of temptation, so don't be deceived. But it's also a good introduction to what he's just getting ready to say. Don't be deceived. All that you enjoy in life comes from you, from a good and perfect father who is good and who does good. Everybody with me so far? Amen. And we can be confident of that because of the second thing we need to mention from this passage today. Namely, it reminds us that God is eternal and that God does not change. Say it again with me. God is good all the time. And let me tell you how you can know that God is good all the time because God is an eternal God who always has been, is today, and always will be and he does not change. That's verse 17. James describes the giving God as the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to what? Say it out loud. Due to change. That's right. Kind of a complex sentence in the Greek New Testament. Could be translated a few different ways, but it's really not that difficult to understand. In fact, the easiest thing to understand is the description of God is father of lights. Well, that's just a reference to the heavenly lights. It's a reference to the creator God that we know from Genesis chapter one. A God who is light in whom there is no darkness at all was a God who spoke at the beginning of time saying, let there be light and there was light. So this is a reference to the celestial bodies, the sun that you see in the daytime, the celestial body. Y'all see that moon last night? Holy cow. That's one of the heavenly lights, reflecting the light, of course, of the sun. But we can observe all kinds of lights in a clear night sky. And in describing God this way, James is reminding us of the awesome power of God, the creative power of God, coming from a God who is eternal and who needs no outside source of power himself in order to sustain himself. He just is an eternal, unchanging God. And this is a reminder that the God who began 
the heaven and the earth by speaking a word. Himself had no beginning. So the fact that God created the heavens and the earth is by itself a, a, a reflection of the eternal nature of God. Because to create the heavens and the earth means that God had to predate the heavens and the earth, right? And for God to create, God must predate. I sound like Johnny Cochran in the O.J. Simpson trial. If it does not fit, you must acquit. <laughs> for God to create, he must predate. Say that together with me. For God to create, he must predate. God is he. Eternal. Nothing that is created is eternal. Only God, who opened up his mouth at the beginning of time, in the beginning that had no beginning, God said, let there be light. And with that word, he became the father of lights. And can I just say this morning, y'all still with me, say amen. If God's strong enough to do that, God's strong enough to provide the good gifts that you need to walk through the difficulties of this life with joy and vitality and power. This phrase that God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Sometimes like the King James Bible says uh, with whom there is no shadow of turning. And that's probably the best translation. Pictured in that, is the movement of all of the celestial bodies that God has created. You all are aware that the universe is constantly in motion, amen? And this is why we have shadows on the earth for the most part, because of the movement. Now, some things that God has made stay stationary, like the sun, stars like the sun. But then there are planetary systems and other types of created order that move constantly. The, move, the earth, for example, the planets are orbiting around the sun. And as they orbit around the sun, they are revolving on their axis. And then we've got satellites or moons that are orbiting around most of the planets. And so there's constant movement and constant motion. You can see them in the phases of the moon. And you can see it most obviously every day as the earth orbits on its axis. You can begin the day and the shadows are leaning one direction and then you walk out at noon and there seems to be no shadow at all. And then just a few hours later, the shadows are cast long from a sun that's setting in the west. So there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of shadows that are cast because the universe is in constant change. But what James wants you to understand is that even though God created a universe that's constantly in motion and constantly changing, God never changes himself. He's an eternal, unchanging God who does not change like the heavens. And this leads to the understanding of another great attribute of God. We've been talking a lot about the attributes of God. We talk about the temptation. You have to talk about the holiness of God to understand why God cannot and does not tempt. Because God, as far as his character concerned, is a holy God. Today, we're talking about the goodness of God that stands behind the generosity from an open hand of God who gives his children every good gift that they enjoy in life. Now, James reminds us that he's a God who does not change. Theologians call that the immutability of God. God is holy. God is good. God is immutable. 
He does not change. There is no shadow of turning with God. And this is primarily one of the big things that distinguishes you from God. Because you constantly change. I've told y'all before, I'm a, I'm a Rice Krispie athlete. Every bone in my body goes snap, crackle, pop. All I gotta do is walk out on a basketball court and you hear all this popping going on as if someone just poured milk all over me. Constant change. From the time a baby is born, the cells are multiplying by the gajillions rapidly and the growth process takes place. From womb to tomb, we are constantly becoming, never staying the same, but not God. Not God. God is not becoming. God is. He is the great I am. And his character never changes. God's purposes never change. God's promises never change. He said it himself, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Many people we know, the adjective is mercurial, mercurial. Mercury in a thermometer causes the thermometer, the old-fashioned ones, to go up and down. How many of you know a mercurial personality? You never know what you're gonna get from them when they walk in the room. Sometimes they can be laughing and joking, but then they'll walk into a room just a few hours later and it's like somebody's flipped a switch and they're ready to pop off because they've gotten upset. Some of y'all had parents like that. When you got home, you were never sure which dad was gonna be there. Was it going to be the dad that wanted to go out and play a game of 21 on the basketball court? Or is it going to be a dad, all you had to do was say the wrong word and he would be ready to pounce? Aren't you thankful that there's no Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde in the God of the Bible? I am the Lord. I change not ours is a good God who does good and who gives good gifts. He always has and he always will. You remember it, don't you? Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I can't remember who wrote that great hymn of the faith, but he was obviously very familiar with the first chapter of James. Can you say amen this morning? God is indeed a good God, the giver of every good gift who never changes. But then as we conclude this morning, notice that James is quick to specify one of God's good gifts that stands out as more significant and more important than any of the others. And that is thirdly, God's greatest gift is the gift of the new birth. God's greatest gift is the gift 
of salvation, the gift of being born again. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. That phrase in the English Standard Translation, he brought us forth, carries with it the idea of childbirth. All of us were brought forth by our mothers at some point on a 365-day calendar. And the word itself in the Greek New Testament means to produce or to generate. And some of your English translations will actually reflect that. The New International Version, for example, says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And what we have to determine here is trying to understand what this really good gift of being produced by God or being given birth by God is referring to. Is God referring to our physical birth? Is he referring to our life as we have today? Well, I certainly think that that's at least a part of it for sure. Because the reality is your life is a good gift from God. There is not one single accident in the room today, not one. There may be some accidental parents, but there are no accidental children. None. You're here by the will of God. You're here by the plan and the purpose of Almighty God. You're created as a homo sapien sapien, a human being created in the image of God, unique and distinct from all of the other animal life that has ever been made. And so your life has tremendous value because you are a creation of God, the crowning achievement of the glory of God. That, by the way, is why you should always celebrate birthdays. Amen. Have birthday parties. Well, you know, I don't celebrate birthdays anymore. Well, shame on you. You need to have a birthday party because every time you do, you're casting attention to the God who gave you life. And every passing year is a good gift from Almighty God. Every breath we take is a gift from God. And so make no mistake, life itself is indeed one of the Father's good gifts, and the Bible says that. Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Say that together with me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That being true, however, I think that James primarily is not thinking of our physical birth here when he says God brought us forth. I think he's talking about the day we got saved. And the reason that I think that's true is because of the modifier here. He says, God brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. By the word of God. In fact, just a couple of verses later down in James 1.21, James will challenge his readers. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to what? Say it out loud. Receive the word of God, which is able to save your soul. That word, word, logos, is a reference to the message of the gospel, the gospel message, the word of Christ's death and burial and resurrection as the remedy for sin and the gift of eternal life. Peter will say it this way in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and abiding, what? Say it out loud. Word of God. You see the connection? Born again 
through the word of God. And that's exactly the language that James uses here in James 1.18. Our Lord has provi uh, provided and performed tons of miracles all throughout the Bible. God is a miracle-working God. And God's given lot, lots of gifts. But can I say this morning, no miracle is greater and no gift is gooder than the miracle and the gift of a sinner hearing the word of the gospel and the spirit of God transforming his or her heart so that they are born again and delivered forever into the very presence of God, becoming children of God with an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away, kept in heaven for you, shielded by the power of God who has the power to raise us from death to life. That's what it means to be born again. It's a miracle every time it happens and only God can do it. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Have you? Have you been born again? This is the greatest of all miracles. It's the best gift of all for by grace are you saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our eternal and unchanging God does not tempt us to do evil, but he's a good God, a good, good father. And in his goodness, he provides us with every good and perfect gift, the most special of which is the gift of the new birth. Are you sure you have been born again.